This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, Planning Committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Maternal Morbidity and Mortality that's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. The United States is the highest spending country in the world for healthcare. However, we're also facing a crisis in maternal mortality. The United States has a higher maternal mortality rate than any other high-income country with 24 deaths per 100,000 live births. That number exceeds even the World Health Organization's acceptable rate, which is 20 maternal deaths per 100,000 live births. The problem isn't getting better either. Since 2000, maternal mortality in the U.S. has doubled and has been exacerbated in recent years by the COVID-19 pandemic. Meanwhile, Globally, maternal mortality declined by 38% from 2000 to 2017. A 2023 JAMA report shows that not only have we seen maternal death rates double in the last 20 years, but there also has been significant disparities among American Indians, Alaska Natives, and Black individuals. The rate of maternal deaths among Black women in the U.S. is the highest of all racial groups and is nearly three times the rate of maternal deaths for white women. We're based in Ohio, and the Midwest and Southern regions are areas that are particularly affected. So what can we do about all this? That's why we, I've invited our guest today, Dr. Cynthia Shellhaas. Dr. Shellhaas is a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Ohio State Wexner Medical Center, specializing in maternal fetal medicine. Additionally, she has a master's in public health and is the medical director of the Bureau of Child and Family Health Services in the Ohio Department of Health, where she works at the state level designing maternal child health programs. Cynthia, welcome to MedNet. 
Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. Well, I'm a primary care physician, so I take care of both moms and babies. So I'm very interested to hear how I can be a part of decreasing maternal mortality. Now, do you have a sense of how many uh, pregnant mothers interact with a primary care provider? Um, it's definitely a minority. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say that most women of reproductive age actually consider their OBGYN to be their primary care provider. Mm -hmm. And that can be okay for the majority of those women as long as they don't have any chronic, you know, conditions. Mm -hmm. But it, it does leave them, you know, kind of in the lurch if something develops mm -hmm. um, and, or if they do have issues, you know, there's really nobody following them mm -hmm. in between pregnancies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That yeah. is a problem. Um, and also to to even screen for chronic conditions to help manage those. Yeah. All definitely. right. Well, if you haven't already, please check out our website at go.osu.edu slash mednet21. You can find all 120 of our webcasts there, along with the slides and instructions to get your CME credit and ABIM MOC points. You can also listen to our programs by podcast. Search for OSU MedNet21 on your podcast app. If you have any questions about our program today, please send those to us using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom of the webcast. Now let's get started. Cynthia? Well, thank you very much for the kind introduction, and I really appreciate the opportunity to speak on this topic today. So first, I'm going to start with data, um, as we always should. I'm going to talk about the current national um, from a couple of different uh, data sources and how they differ, as well as our own state data here in Ohio. Then I'm going to talk about how this data informs our um, action efforts and also how they're informed by the uh, Maternal Mortality Review Committee recommendations that we make. And then finally, I'll talk about what medical providers, and in particular primary care, can do to impact maternal mortality. So with regard to the data, uh, there are uh, three main sources uh, that we use, uh, two that are at the national level, one from the National Center for Health Statistics and the Pregnancy Mortality Surveillance System. And both of these have been around for a number of years. They're very high level uh, estimates and they rely on vital statistics data, specifically the death certificate. And what happens for both is that a medical medical epidemiologists at CDC conduct a high-level review of the death certificate, and that's where they get their rates um, and their estimate of pregnancy relatedness, um, as well as the causes of death. The differences between the two, because you may be wondering, why have two? Can't they be combined? Uh, the National Center for Health Statistics uh, follows, defines maternal death out to 42 days, which is the standard postpartum six-week period after the end of a pregnancy. And they do this because, and this is a valuable uh, number, because this is how the World Health Organization defines maternal mortality. So the numbers generated by the National Center for Health Statistics are the ones that can be comp compared to other countries in the world so that we kind of know, you know, where we are in relation to them. The Pregnancy Mortality Surveillance System, as well as all the Medical Mortality Review Committees, take a broader definition. And that is, we monitor uh, the um, uh, number of deaths all the way out to a year post end of pregnancy, whether that pregnancy was a term delivery, preterm delivery, ectopic, or miscarriage. 
So, and that broader definition gives us a much more complete sense of what is actually going on in this space. And then finally, um, the maternal mortality review committees are a more comprehensive summary um, where we look at not just vital statistics data, but all kinds of medical records, prenatal care, hospital, um, autopsy reports, mental health records, social service, social media posts, EMS run records, all of those things to try to paint a complete story of what actually were the events surrounding the death. And the review is, is uh, by a committee of experts. So in Ohio, um, our MMRC is called the Pregnancy Associated Mortality Review Committee. And it's been in, in operating here through the Ohio Department of Health since 2010. And we started our first year of um, review was the uh, 2008 deaths. We operated under a general public health law, um, which gave the Director of Health the authority to um, investigate uh, deaths within uh, the state and for the first number of years that we were in operation. But in 2019, more specific legislation was passed that essentially protected um, committee proceedings um, that um, gave more um, authority to um, ask for records and receive them and had some details on how the committee should be formulated and operate as well as report. There are kind of two groups. I've talked about the um, Pamer Committee itself, but there's also the staff. And we have currently in Ohio uh, three full-time and two part-time nurse abstractors. We also have a staff member uh, who half of their uh, job time is spent requesting all of these records that are used. And that is a large job. Um, and then we also have um, a coordinator uh, who helps manage all the meetings and things related to the members. Uh, we have a couple of program consultants who, and I'll talk about our grant programs later on, that they manage those, uh, as well as other administrative support and data analysts. The multidisciplinary team itself includes all of these things I have listed here. Um, many medical subspecialties, heavy on the OBGYN, maternal fetal medicine and midwifery, but also anesthesiology, critical care, psychiatry, um, cardiology, uh, pathology, and non-clinical members. We have uh, doulas, we have patient advocates, uh, social workers, um, members representing public health, uh, both at the state and local level, epidemiology, as well as addiction medicine, home visiting, and violence prevention. So how does this all operate? And I'm spending some time just because uh, the, we'll be using our recommendations and our data to inform uh, the different grant activities that we have going and what we're going to recommend for the future. So our staff start out by identifying all the pregnancy-associated deaths that occurred to Ohio residents. This is three ways. Number one, the death certificate will have what's called O-codes, which are diagnosis codes related to pregnancy. They also has uh, a pregnancy checkbox system. Um, and then finally, our vital statistics people do a linkage 
they take the death certificates of all women within reproductive age and they try to link them to any live birth or fetal death certificates that might be um, available within the state. So, uh, and that yields I, the closest estimate is the most complete number of um, deaths that we feel that we can get. Now the staff then um, obtain records from any facilities, providers, offices where the decedent received care. We do have um, a memorandum of understanding with Medicaid and so we can get their billing records and see who maybe has billed, um, billed uh, for uh, uh, services and get those providers if we can't tell from the vital statistics data. And then as we get more records, sometimes we realize, okay, well, these, we need these records too. So, like I said, this includes lots of different things, police investigative reports, coroner's reports, autopsy reports, medical transport records, all manner of things, and social media. Uh, that can be helpful as well. So once, uh, once we have all those records, our nurse abstractors distill that down into a usable de-identified case summary that described the events that led to the decedent's death. This goes to the committee. We meet monthly and we have at least, you know, do uh, a number of cases. And our committee answers six key questions. Was the death related to the pregnancy? What was the cause of death? In other words, did we agree with the cause of death listed on the death certificate? Was the death preventable? What were the underlying factors that contributed to the death? And for each of those factors, we make a recommendation to prevent future um, maternal deaths. And then finally, we estimate what do we think the anticipated impact of our recommendations would be if implemented? Because that gives us an idea and to tell um, stakeholders um, what are the most feasible um, feasible um, and the most impactful uh, recommendations to look at first. Then after we do all that, our staff analysts will analyze the data collected uh, and they'll disseminate it uh, via reports, presentations like this one, um, anywhere that we're asked to speak and we speak to a variety of groups. So, and we also use this data to inform and guide implementation of various public health programs and I'll be talking about um, our grants and the program, how we use this data to do those uh, grants. So with some definitions, been kind of throwing around a couple of different terms. Pregnancy-associated death is the uh, very general uh, term. Uh, it's the death of a woman who was pregnant within one year of the end of her pregnancy, regardless of the cause, and it doesn't, it's due to any cause, it can be dying of a motor vehicle accident, day 364, post-delivery, uh, or it could be an obstetric hemorrhage on the day of delivery or during, preg or during her pregnancy. A pregnancy-related death is one that the cause arises from a chain of events initiated by the pregnancy, aggravated by um, an unrelated condition, uh, by the physiologic effects of pregnancy. In other words, you ask the question, if the woman had not been pregnant, would she still have died? And if the answer is no, then that death is considered pregnancy-related. So then the others that, are, that are, we don't feel are pregnancy-related are in that pregnancy-associated but not related category. And then very, very rarely, 
we feel we're not able to determine that. And that's usually because of a lack of records or lack of information about the cause of death. But it's a very tiny, tiny amount. Okay, so let's go to national data here first. And so what this, this data I'm going to show here comes from the Pregnancy Mortality Surveillance System, which is, like I said, it's an um, estimate. And so uh, you see here the rise. On the left, we start in 1987, um, where the um, rates, the ratios, which are per 100,000 live births, range between 6 to 8 per 100,000 live births. And then you watch it go up over time until we're in the mid-teens to high-teens. And that's just the national kind of average and from this uh, vital statistics estimate. Why this increase? Several different factors. Certainly some of it's ascertainment. There's been a lot of work done uh, to better identify maternal deaths. It's only been in the mid-90s uh, that uh, most states have started to adopt the, preg the pregnancy checkbox on their death certificates. So that was, that's obviously, you know, one. Um, and then we see, um, you know, the rise of more and more maternal mortality review committees across the, across the uh, country. And they're reviewing deaths and they're uncovering more deaths. Next, uh, we see a rise in uh, the age of women that are pregnant and deliver nowadays. Many more women that are over 35, which is the definition of advanced maternal age, but also greater than 40. And these women are much more likely to have chronic conditions, which include obesity, uh, diabetes, chronic hypertension, and those all play a role. The other things that's been happening most recently is the rise of maternity care deserts. And probably some of you have read in your locations, like we have in Ohio, there have been closures of maternity units uh, across the state, leading to lack of access for women to where they can deliver or where they can be seen for a pregnancy complication. So all these things and more play into this rise. Um, as our moderator, Dr. Mao said earlier, there is a difference by race and ethnicity. Um, with um, African-American women, non-Hispanic blacks, uh, having the higher rate of three to four times nationally compared to non-Hispanic whites. And just to put it in kind of a, a different kind of perspective, Non-Hispanic black women who have a college education have a higher rate of pregnancy mortality than a non-Hispanic white woman with an eighth grade education. That is, education is not protective. It is um, the uh, race that's the issue. So causes of death. This is going to differ a little bit uh, depending on which source that we use. So this is from the Pregnancy Mortality Surveillance System, and it shows you the classic medical uh, complications. And in this particular one, number one, um, cardiovascular conditions, which often surprises a lot of people. They think, why is it obstetric hemorrhage or preeclampsia? Uh, but it is indeed a cardiac conditions and infection followed by infectious, infections, including sepsis. But this is the PMS data. When we look at the circumstances contributing pregnancy-related deaths that uh, occur, that we find in our deeper drive, our deeper drill down in the maternal uh, mortality review committees, what we found is that big contributing factors are obesity, discrimination, 
not just because of race, but other populations like our patients with opioid use disorder, mental health conditions, and substance use disorders. And Ohio, we'll see their data in a minute, but it's very similar to the, it, we were one of the 36 um, MMRCs in this uh, 2022 report. And what we found is that number one, cause of death in Ohio and nationally are mental health conditions. That includes addiction disorder with overdoses, as well as depression, anxiety, and other psychiatric conditions. So here is our Ohio data, and it does come from our PAMER, or MMRC, uh, working group. So we started reviewing cases from 2008, um, and our most recent data goes up to 2018, although the 2020 data will be available very shortly. Um, so during this time period, we see this increase. Now, you'll notice in 2009, there's a little bit of a, a bump. And that is a due to, that is the timing of the H1N1 pandemic. And we did have some maternal deaths because of that. So um, what we see is that we see, um, starting in uh, 2017, we see a significant increase um, in maternal deaths. We're currently reviewing 2021 deaths. Um, and so at the end of that time period, we should be able to uh, paint a fuller picture of the impact of COVID as well. Uh, like I said, mental health is number one in Ohio, followed by cardiovascular conditions and infection, um, hemorrhage and hypertension, top five. We too have a disparity here in Ohio with non-Hispanic black women being almost twice more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than non-Hispanic white women timing of these deaths. I know probably when a lot of people think about this, they think that it must happen in the delivery room. But in fact, most, post, most maternal deaths occur in the postpartum period, two thirds of them in fact. 43% of these occur from day one to day 42 or the classic six week postpartum period. But 23% occur from day uh, 43 through 365. And that's important, and that's kind of some specific uh, causes of death, particularly those related to peripartum uh, cardiomyopathy, as well as uh, some of the overdose deaths. As I said, one of the um, key questions that we answer is about preventability. Um, and overall, the committee found 61% of deaths in Ohio to be preventable. And this did vary by cause, with the highest cause being that of uh, those due to hypertensive emergencies. And uh, that was in excess of 80%. So, as I said, for every contributing factor that we have, we make recommendations in the committee. But what, what happens then with these recommendations? And of course, the elephant in the room with that is, where do you get the money to implement these recommendations? So we were very fortunate in uh, 2019 in that we were able to successfully compete for two federal grants. Uh, they total uh, over $12 million and they last, uh, they are five-year grants. So we're in a year, at the beginning of year five currently. So from HRSA, we were one of nine states to receive a maternal health innovation grant. We were in the first cohort. Uh, there is, they've just announced uh, cohort three. So there are other states uh, for those of you in other states that have received this grant. 
The bulk of the money is for this. And uh, this is um, uh, one of our um, funding most of our uh, big projects uh, that I'm going to talk about in a minute. Now, I mentioned cohort three, and I'm proud to say that we successfully recompeted uh, for um, the uh, next HRSA grant. And so we will be um, having another five years of funding with this. So we're really pleased with that. So we'll be able to continue the work that we're doing and maybe even um, expand in some areas. The CDC grant, um, we're in year five of that. Uh, there will be an opportunity to apply for more funding. We're one, we were one of 25 states uh, to receive this grant funding. And subsequently, I think in the high 40s, numbers of states have actually received a CDC grant of this type. And this is focusing on improving the work of the MMRCs, particularly data quality. So, but a few other things as well. So what are these things that we're doing with all of this money? So these next couple of slides just kind of give a quick overview and then I'll go into more detail. But um, some of these projects that are listed here, some of, they're all in different kind of stages. And some of them um, are well-established and going full bore. Some of them we've actually completed and then some of them are just starting. I want to specifically kind of call out the Ohio Council to Advance Maternal Health because um, people say, why doesn't the PAMER do more? Why aren't they doing more? Well, we're a surveillance system. So we can make recommendations and do all those things, um, but the members of the committee themselves, that's where their job ends. The OCAM is our um, um, implementation arm, if you will. And I'll talk more about it, but we have folks from all over the state, all different kinds of backgrounds, and forming 11 implementation teams, all working on kind of different areas. Um, and a lot of them are folks that are working, you know, on those teams are folks that are working in some of the other projects. So it's all kind of tied together uh, to keep moving forward. And then we have, of course, quality improvement projects and workforce development projects program implementation uh, types of grants, pilot projects for other areas in the state. We have a respectful care project, uh, as I said, more quality improvement projects, the urgent maternal warning signs, things for the, on the patient side of things, as well as an interconception project. So AIM, the first one. AIM stands for the Alliance Alliance in Innovation for Maternal Health Care. And it's operated by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And it is a quality improvement uh, program, federal, at the federal level. So what actually happens? You apply as a state or some other kind of large entity, like maybe uh, a a large hospital system, perhaps. There are a couple of those, but mostly it's as a state. You apply to be an AIM state. And what, you, what you're going to become from doing an AIM state, you'll get a little bit of money, not very much, but a little bit. And then you will run, um, you will try to engage all your birthing facilities. The goal is 100%, but as many as you possibly can in quality improvement work around one 
or two of different bundles, usually one at a time. And the bundles are around the causes of death and mortality, uh, morbidity um, that we've identified, i.e. there's a hypertensive emergency bundle, there is a hemorrhage bundle, and so forth. So you say, well, we're in Ohio, we are going to engage in the hypertension bundle. And so you engage your birthing hospitals, usually in waves, and a several hospitals at a time, a, a group of them, and you'll all implement the hemorrhage bundle throughout your hospital. These bundles, like I said, are quality improvement work. They're, um, the AIM provides you the outline, and as a group, you just work, work on what your um, PDSA cycles are going to be, your opportunities for improvement. Um, and the goal for the hypertension one is that every hyper, uh, severe hypertensive blood, blood pressure is treated within 60 minutes of verification. Now, this may seem like a lot sooner if possible, but no outset at the 60, 60 minutes. And you might say, well, aren't they doing that anyway? And in fact, that is the major problem uh, identified with um, deaths due to hypertensive emergency. So the first state was actually Oklahoma, and they, I think hemorrhage was the first bundle that they instituted, and that was, I want to say, around 2014. Now, um, we were not the last state to join um, in 2019, um, but um, there are very few states, most states have um, signed on and are working on different types of bundles. So what we decided to do was we picked hypertension first. It was the fifth leading cause of pregnancy-related deaths in Ohio, but had the highest preventability um, identification at 89%. So we decided to do that one first. Hemorrhage fourth is the next second one that we've initiated, and it's the fourth leading cause of pregnancy-related deaths, but had 63% that were deemed preventable. And these dots represent all the hospitals here in Ohio that are currently implementing the hypertension bundle. We are have just finishing up year three, and so we've done three sites, three waves. Uh, that includes 82 sites or 82 birthing facilities. Uh, the number of birthing facilities in Ohio is fluctuating, but I want to say it's right around 88 or 89. We've had a number of closures. I think um, this has been a real success story. And one of the things I want to point out with all these projects is, so we got the award in late 2019, which meant we start working on, started working on things in the winter of 2020. So all of these projects started implementation during the COVID epidemic. So all these hospitals were dealing with the COVID epidemic, but still found it to be important enough that they needed to, to do this work in addition to all of the COVID um, issues that they were dealing with. So um, hemorrhage is what we're, where we're at now, and the wave two just started in this past October, and we have 24 sites um, from wave one and 27 in wave two. So this is, uh, this is ongoing work currently. And then with our new funding, in addition to our current bundles, we will next do maternal sepsis, followed by the bundle on women with opioid use disorder. And like I said, we've picked these, you know, 
on basis on our specific causes of death as well as the preventability. Uh, next, uh, the urgent maternal warning signs. So uh, what these are is a it, it's one thing to educate providers, which is one of our reg, uh, recommendations, but also patients on how to recognize um, obstetric complications. There's a lot going on in the um, during your pregnancy as well as especially the postpartum period when you're dealing with a newborn, and it can be very um, you know complicated. And so um, what this strives to do is teach women about common urgent maternal warning signs, shortness of breath, excessive bleeding, headaches that won't go away, maybe swelling in one leg greater than the other, all potential warning signs for potential um, morbidity and mortality. So um, A1 as well as uh, the AIM, uh, AIM um, national group has put together these um, kind of materials for this as well as kind of the teaching, a teaching toolkit, if you will. What we've done actually is um, institute these here, here in Ohio as part of our project. We instituted them in all the WIC programs, um, 80, 82 of them, in fact. And so we taught the WIC professionals how to teach urgent maternal warning signs, and they have done it with their clients. And so during the, the time of the um, the um, um, project, almost 98% of what clients uh, postpartum and pregnant were taught urgent maternal warning signs. We're currently running this, um, I'm teaching um, home visiting programs uh, here in Ohio, and uh, they are instituting it uh, in their um, programming. So um, it's hard to quantitate what that might be in terms of uh, decreasing morbidity and mortality and that impact specifically, but there's a lot of qualitative data on um, making an impact among um, all their clients. Uh, this project uh, was um, an interconception project for uh, pediatric care providers, meaning pediatricians, IMPs, and family medicine practices. And what we know is that um, only about 50% of Medicaid uh, insured women have a postpartum visit, but over 90% will go to the well, one of their well child visits. And so this was a way to impact um, or to engage pediatrician, pediatric providers um, in screening women uh, for uh, certain problems. And the four problems that we looked at uh, were um, postpartum depression screening, um, family planning, tobacco use, and also multivitamin use. And so it was a smaller project, uh, but all the sites were able to increase screening um, and increase referrals for mothers with at-risk screens. So it was a very feasible thing to do in those offices. Uh, the Compassionate and Equitable Care Project. Uh, this is a uh, learning community that's currently uh, being formed and started for um, hospitals. One of the things we hear from listening group among women is that uh, they don't feel listened to and that they don't feel respected uh, by healthcare providers at various, various points in their pregnancy or postpartum care. Um, a project that preceded this was that was, that was funded by this project um, was that of implicit bias trainings. And um, this occurred 
uh, over a four-year period. It's completed now, but nearly a thousand women's health professionals uh, were um, underwent um, implicit bias training funded by the project. And I will say that it was started out as in-person and then during COVID pivoted to virtual training. And that appeared to be very effective as well and very well received. So this, uh, the CARE project is just getting started. So we'll be interested, more, more to report later. Under the workforce development, and I'm personally involved in this, from 2014 to 2017, uh, we did on-site with prior funding, on-site um, simulation training for OB emergencies for OB providers. And we were able to uh, train a number of uh, providers um, in that uh, venue. But for this, we recognize that a lot of the postpartum uh, patients come back to the emergency room. And so we needed to train obstetric providers um, on simulation, using simulation on obstetric emergencies. So um, we've done a number of trainings. Again, this happened during COVID. We had to pivot to virtual, virtual simulation, and it, it has worked, and uh, we're continuing to do that. Um, and here, this is just a shy slide showing in orange uh, about the, 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 our women um, our, that um, here in Ohio that actually uh, their, the site of their desk was the emergency department, overall 24%. And in particular, those causes of death were thrombotic embolisms and cardiovascular. We did do a survey of all hospitals um, prior to doing this project. And 98% of Ohio hospitals said they did simulation training, but only 30% engaged their emergency departments uh, with their OB departments. So this shows the leading causes of death for both blacks on the left and non-Hispanic whites on the right. And uh, our three scenarios that we run are that for uh, cardiovascular, hypertension emergency, and hemorrhage. See prominently on the left. Uh, we are um, doing some uh, funding of small pilot projects um, around the state, as well as some expanding some centering pregnancy, the group prenatal care model. Um, and some of these projects, this is the current ones, a lot of them center around care navigation, um, early detection of hypertensive disorders in pregnant postpartum women, giving out blood pressure cuffs and things like that as well as um, engaging doula and other advocacy groups and um, giving them additional funding for risk intake, um, behavioral health services, and really expanding their, um, their efforts beyond that of just labor support. Not just, but beyond labor support. And then I've talked a little bit about the OCAM. And we have, like I said, 196 individuals from 84 different organizations working together. So. Um, that's a major success for us. I talked about completing uh, the implicit bias trainings. And then you'll see we did some telehealth training for women's health care providers. In particular, our reproductive health and wellness providers at ODH and WIC providers. So finally, what can you do as a health care provider? Well, as a, every health care provider plays a role. Not just, it's not just an obstetrician's problem. 
And if you're seeing in your office a reproductive age woman, two questions. Are you pregnant now or have you been pregnant in the past year? Because if they say yes, they've been pregnant in the last year, it's important to ask about complications. And depending on the timing and what their complaint is coming to the office, you may find that you have um, an obstetric-related complaint that you might not have known about. Um, the second question is, do you want to become pregnant in the next year? Very few women actually get preconception care um, or think about it because they're just so busy. And a lot of pregnancies are unplanned. This gives you the opportunity to refer them for contraception, perhaps. Uh, but also, if they say yes, to talk with them about the chronic conditions or maybe other, other um, unhealthy things in their history that perhaps uh, you can have them start working on and develop a plan for. So I think it's, that's very important as a primary care provider. Um, other things, um, if you do see a lot of pregnant women, maybe for unrelated pregnancy things, but vaccinations are a big thing, and we see this a lot, especially as we're reviewing the COVID deaths now. Um, there are urgent warning, maternal warning signs. Um, it may be an opportunity to actually do some of that education uh, yourselves. Um, and but basically talk about to them about symptoms during the pregnancy that should never be ignored. And also screening them for uh, social determinants of health, transportation problems, um, food insecurity, mental health conditions. And helping them with care coordination, uh, which I'm sure you know people do in their office anyway. But it's even more important for women who are contemplating pregnancy or maybe um, are pregnant. If you're a hospital system, we do this at Ohio State. Um, we have a committee where we look at our institutional data related to maternal and infant health. But look at your institutional data for your own health metrics in that area, especially including race and ethnicity. Review adverse events shortly thereafter, including debriefing, Sentinel events perform root cause analysis, become engaged in quality improvement, um, support AIM uh, if that's being engaged with, with your hospital, standardize coordination of care in response to emergencies, and institute implicit bias training and compassionate care measures in your health system. If you're a birthing person or their support person, know the urgent maternal warning signs of obstetric complications, Advocate for treatment if necessary. Make sure you inform providers of your pregnancy history anytime you receive medical care in the year after delivery, even if you think, oh, this isn't related. Err on the side of caution and do that. Also have your um, support person or family member come with you to appointments, especially if there's uh, serious things coming on. It's always helpful to have another person there who can ask questions and take notes and know your community supports. What's available to you in terms of doula services, patient navigators, lactation consultants? This is just a brief slide about the uh, things going on at the federal level. And there is lots of attention being made to this now. We have one of the HRSA grants in bullet three. Uh, there is um, a lot of work 
going around establishing rural obstetric networks for QI and innovation. And the Momnibus is a comprehensive legislative package of about 12 individual bills that address all manner of things related to the maternal health care crisis. So I urge you to uh, support your, um, or urge your legislators to support um, passage of those. And then finally, I'm just going to leave you with some um, kind of real life examples. And these are actually um, PAMER recommendations that the committee made uh, about chronic disease. And it has a lot here about educating pregnant women about hypertension in particular and the long-term consequences of suboptimal management, about providing obesity is a huge problem. Like you said, it was over a third of deaths that was a contributing factor. Um, transition to primary care. It's very important that there be some kind of warm handoff between OBGYNs and primary care for women that have chronic medical conditions in the postpartum period. We can take it a little ways out, but not all the way out. So, and here's just a couple of cases, um, you know, just to illustrate the causes of death um, that retain to, pertain to chronic disease. Uh, this lady, only 28 years old, basically found down at home. Um, body mass index of 54. She was a smoker, gestational hypertension, had just had a cesarean delivery. Um, I read that and I don't know anything else about it. And I think pulmonary embolism, lots of risk factors for that. But in fact, on autopsy, she was found to have undiagnosed hypertensive atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Um, and probably, probably when we look back at this, uh, some poorly controlled hypertension. So uh, this lady, also an uncontrolled hypertension-related uh, type of death. Uh, she was older, um, known to be uncontrolled for a variety of reasons. And in the postpartum period, postpartum day nine, awoke with a severe headache, one of those maternal warning signs, not relieved by acetaminophen known to be markedly hypertensive in the emergency department. And I will say for postpartum that we consider the magic numbers to treat 160 over 110. That's probably lower than a lot of um, EMS professionals, emergency medicine, and maybe um, primary care folks think about. You're used to seeing lots of high blood pressures. Uh, but this, is, uh, this number is associated, and it's non-treatment is associated with morbidity mortality in our particular population. Uh, and so, of course, this patient did indeed have a stroke later and ultimately die. So um, I'll just kind of leave you, uh, you know, with that. Great. Thank back. you so much, Cynthia. That was really helpful to hear kind of what's not just being done at an individual level, but kind of more broadly at the legislative or health department level. Um, I was wondering, you know, looking at your slides, is Ohio, you mentioned that, you know, mental health is very common, not just mm -hmm. in Ohio, but from your slides, it looks like in Ohio, it's the number one cause of maternal deaths. And it doesn't, that doesn't even figure on the national data. Um, what, what would be the reason for that discrepancy? Well, a lot of it actually is where the, the, the source of the data. Okay. And, um, for the PMMS data, which is what most people see, mm -hmm. you know, because it's and it, the PMS system has been around for like 30 years. So that's going to come from the death certificate, mm -hmm. you know, and um, the a lot of the mental health issues 
don't even um, are not even marked as pregnancy related, mm, you know, okay. by that system. Uh -huh. And so when we drill down in MMRCs and look at you know the causes of, causes of death, we can see that um, a lot of uh, the psychiatric they are actually pregnancy related and they're triggered by pregnancy events. Mm. Um, and they're like one example is a traumatic event that happens in pregnancy. Okay. Maybe it's a stillbirth, uh -huh. a baby with anomalies that's uh -huh. not going to do well. Okay. That sort of a thing. Or traumatic delivery, uh, you know, uh -huh. like a big abruption, instability, you know, and mm -hmm. you come out of it anesthesia, surprised to be alive, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. things like that. Or child being removed, the baby being removed from your custody, mm -hmm. perhaps yeah. unexpectedly. Uh -huh. um, so big, big stressors like that, that then um, kind of lead to coping via increased use and subsequent overdose and death. Okay. Especially a lot of women are abstinent during pregnancy. And so then their body system becomes naive to certain doses. Mm -hmm. And then if they restart and maybe they, you know, don't realize that they're more naive to those higher doses, mm -hmm. they're more likely to, to overdose. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like a very under-recognized problem, probably yeah. a very prevalent just along with the opioid crisis, just very yeah. under-recognized in pregnancy. Yes. And the other thing is a lot of women get intensive services during the pregnancy and then after delivery, there's a drop off in the mm -hmm. intent, you know, and there's mm -hmm. not the the good linkage or even the availability of services for non-pregnant women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's very unfortunate. Yeah. Um, now, you know, when you're doing the MMRCs and determining whether or not the deaths are preventable, how do you determine if something is preventable or not? Yeah. So, and this is a, this, this and pregnancy relatedness are the two key questions I think the committee really struggles with, mm -hmm. and in particular preventability, lots of discussion around it. But ask yourself, we ask this question another way, is there a chance to alter the outcome? And so if there's at least some chance, mm -hmm. and maybe it's not like an absolutism, you know, but maybe there might be some chance, because how can you know for sure? Right. But if there's some chance of a death being averted, by changing one or more contributing factors, whether that be at the um, uh, patient, family, provider, facility, or even the community level, then we give it, then we deem it preventable. Mm -hmm. A lot of people hear preventability and they think medical error, you mm -hmm. know, that they're related. Mm -hmm. But we're using a much more broad definition of preventability. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know. So really, it sounds like a lot of people can play a part in preventing these deaths, not Absolutely. just physicians, really, like the whole community, really. And in some respects, you could even think that we're the least important. <laughs> you know, it's painful for me to say, uh -huh. but, you know. Sure. Now, I thought it was very um, in interesting that the reason for death is different between black and white women. Um, mm -hmm. Do we know, like you mentioned, racism is a big problem. Does that seem to be the major contributor to... Um, the differences? I think if you dig down, a structural racism and implicit bias are definitely the biggest cause. Mm -hmm. And what you see with maternal, uh, with maternal health is there may even be a delay in starting prenatal care, mm -hmm. you know, because perhaps poor, poor experiences, you know, with mm. the available 
prenatal care system or uh -huh. hospital system, and so they delay, you know, may delay care because they don't want to experience it, that. Uh -huh. You can have that. There's also, you know, variations in hospital quality, uh -huh. and you have some increased of certain chronic conditions like hypertension, chronic hypertension in black women. Mm -hmm. So, um, mm -hmm. all, but all those things play a role. Okay. And now, the social determinants of health are usually disproportionately worsened in non-Hispanic black women. Okay. Now, last question. Um, you know, you mentioned it's really important to control these chronic conditions. Are, are, do obstetricians take over the care of those chronic conditions during pregnancy, or should the patients still be seeing their primary care doctor for that? Well, I think that ideally they would see both. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, primary care doctors may not feel comfortable uh, seeing pregnant women for some of these chronic conditions mm. um, in some communities. Mm -hmm. It just kind of depends on where you practice, and it varies. Okay. Um, and so I've had a lot of our primary care col or our primary obstetric colleagues, you know, say, I don't want to take care of all this diabetes or gestational <laughs> diabetes, but nobody uh -huh. else will. Right. And uh -huh. they live such a distance from, you know, Ohio State that the patients can't necessarily come there. So we can help support them with telehealth often, uh -huh. Uh -huh. but they still end up bearing a, a disproportionate you know, sometimes more than they want to, uh -huh. okay. care of chronic disease, yeah. So primary care, we can really play um, kind of a key role in helping to control some of these conditions. Yes, All right. definitely. Great, thank you so much, that was so You're helpful. Um, we're gonna finish up today's program with a final key point, Cynthia? Yeah, so the biggest point I wanna make is, and this is probably kind of said a little bit during the talk, but this is a huge problem, and we should be thinking not in terms of reducing maternal mortality, but elimination. The number should be zero. And this is an everybody problem. It's not an obstetrical problem. It's not even uh, just a straight medical problem. This is the problem of a community. It's the problem of public health. It's the problem of law enforcement and the legal system of advocacy groups, uh, religious groups, um, everybody that makes up a community, government, stakeholders, policymakers, Everybody has a role to play, so. Perfect, thank you so much for joining us. For our audience, you can receive CME credit for watching by logging onto our website, ccme.osu.edu and taking the post-test. Join us again next week. My guests will be Drs. Julie Teeter and Emily Kaufman here to discuss clinical presentations of subacute intoxication and withdrawal. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.